0: besties. It's Kohar. And I'm Iman. And you're
1: tuned into another episode of Name It, your encyclopedia of big ideas changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. Today, our big idea is, drumroll please. Hey! And y'all better be ready because Kohar has been... (laughs) I'm ready. Talking about <laughs> hair and telling me everything she wants to put it in this outline every time she has a thought when <laughs> she comes out of her room. Cause we're roomies, if you didn't know. Yes. And Iman is
0: the best roomie ever. Speaking of hair, she's great at doing hair. Thank you. It's such a love language. Thank you. Hair is such a connective tissue between black women. And being Armenian, I have so many things to say about hair because just being from a group that's constantly described as hairy, Yeah, I'm like, it's the reality. Today I was removing some hair while doing my hair and also listening to sneak peek Asha, our besties, voice recording about hair. And I was like, you know, if hair wasn't so important, like this wouldn't be... Such a spiritual experience and such a noteworthy experience. And whether it's the recent protests in Iran, whether it's just, I, I saw something recently. <laughs> I'm not going to expose any of our opinions about this, but talking about like our childhood trauma about facial hair and like mustaches and unibrows. <laughs> there's this tiktok about this woman like waxing her little child's unibrow and i was like wow that brought me back to middle school and just one time i came in yeah with like scabs on my mustache area (laughs) because i tried to (laughs) to wax my mustache myself in like seventh grade and it just went wrong and i was like shit Now I got to just rock them. Oh, my God. I remember when Nair, when you would get like Nair burns on your... I never used it because I knew I would burn myself.
1: Literally dangerous.
0: So you get it too. It's like hair is just both this loving, beautiful, medicinal, spiritual experience of connection between, I think, mostly in my life between women. But at the same time, it's associated with a lot of pain. And you and I both have talked about it. We grew up with this idea of beauty is pain. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, why couldn't why couldn't we have had a saying that was like, beauty is kind, beauty is right. Loving. Right. Gentle. Right. Cause it was all those things too. Yeah. And it's, a
1: bit of redemptive suffering.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. True. That's why we're like this. Yeah. Just like yeah. for example, the reason why at this time in life this episode, I'm like, we got to talk about it. Not only is inspired by our great friend, but another Black woman I ran into. My great friend Zaza, shout out to you, Zaza. She's a PhD student in nursing here at Yale, who I work with at OGSDD, the Office of Graduate Student Diversity. Yes. She just got her hair done after she had gotten it done like just a couple weeks before, and mm. I thought she'd keep that in for a couple months. And when I saw her, I was like, damn, your braids look good. She got a whole new hairstyle, just cornrows, but like many, many, many cornrows down her back. Yeah. So like the whole shebang. And I was like, how long did it take you? You got it done recently? She was like, oh, only five hours. That's me. (laughs) And I'm like, LOL. Only black women talk like that. Like going to the hair salon for us is always what, like a five hour minimum. At least. At least. (laughs) And that's why it's it's a lot of time spent in these physical spaces and talking
1: about hair as a result. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I relate to that because as somebody that changes my hair literally every three to four weeks, Mm -hmm. I feel like every single time I change my hair, nobody recognizes me on campus. So it also feels like a new disguise or a
0: metamorphosis
1: a metamorphosis
0: exactly a transformation I feel like you're really great at expressing yourself through your hair and your style you've taught me new hairstyles the airy bun that, that I got going it's that
1: cheerle- it's that post uh, cheerleading cheerleading life of braids and updos and I love it you've upgraded that. my life but I'm I'm the same way I will spend five hours doing my hair And it will feel like no time and so well worth it. But then when I need to sit down and write for five hours, that feels like so painful. I need a better relationship with writing, but that's okay.
0: That's okay. I think if anything, that made me realize that we experience time differently based on what we're doing, based on who we're with. Yeah. Based on where our, you know, energy is kind of directed towards. Yeah. And hair is one thing that In childhood, used to be kind of excruciatingly long because we'll get into that. I was tenderheaded. So I was like, oh, make this stop. Whereas now I love getting my hair done. And Mm -hmm. it does feel like a time that's like spiritual and grounding and shedding, like release. Absolutely. All of that leads perfectly into our next segment.
1: Yes. Which is part of our case study. Exactly. And as you guys know, before we talk about our big idea, even though we've already had so much to say, we give you guys a case study. And our case study is the
0: segment in the show where we introduce the big idea by talking about an instance where we see it playing out in our everyday lives, our research, or in current events. And hair and the politics around hair is something that is ever present And we know there's so many different, whether it's a show like the most recent thing. Is it called Hair Tales, I think? Hair Tales, yeah, with Tracy Alice Ross. Whether it's that, whether in, you know, the legal sphere, it's the Crown Act, whether it's the recent protests in Iran, hair is always in current events. Mm -hmm. It's always in our pop culture. It's always in our everyday lives because everyone... Not actually, everyone has it, my dad's bald. Some people don't have hair, but it is this politicized thing. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted to give space to someone, a dear friend of ours, to share her personal everyday life experience with us with a recent hair release ceremony that she held that we were very blessed to be a part of. So long story short, today we are phoning a friend. Just like we had our siblings phone in, our dear friend Asha, who we went to Dartmouth College with, is going to be sharing her testimony and her personal experience doing what black women call the big chop, cutting off her hair as she knew it. And in a way, you'll hear it from herself directly, letting go of a part of herself, temporarily, at least.
1: Yeah. I remember we were literally in the studio recording an episode and she was having it at the same time we were recording and we just wanted to be a part of it so bad that we just had it propped up here as I think we were recording for The Wake. So all that to say is like this was something that included so many people in her life and her loved ones and it was a space to like really show up for her. And I love that.
0: Yes. So how about we talk a little bit about how it was held? It was on Zoom, first of all. Yeah. And... I think we had heard from Asha a little bit prior that she wanted to cut her hair. And we were in full support because my sibling, Gadina actually went through that same thing and wanted to cut her hair. And I was like, oh, I feel like it is such a spiritual transitional experience of just kind of welcoming in the new. And I think I simply called it in our text, in our group chat, like, what a beautiful idea, a hair release ceremony. And Asha, our Gemini friend who, like, is the most thoughtful spiritual being, she took it and ran with it and was like, you're so right.
1: I will have a hair release ceremony. Yeah. (laughs) So you've heard about it through us, but here's Asha explaining it in her own words. Cutting my
2: hair was part of a larger healing journey that I've been on for about a year now. It was around this time in 2021, November 2021, October 2021, where I was really starting to acknowledge and vocalize to myself that there are strong forces in my life that need me to change if I'm going to live a happier and more, um, a life more deeply connected to who I am and meant to be. I had this awareness about a year ago. but did not yet have the courage to start the process of changing my behaviors to, you know, become more in line with that version of myself. Cutting the hair, one of the initial reasons why I wanted to do it was to look more queer. (laughs) I wanted to have something about me that said queer because I, I didn't feel like, in the absence of. A voice around this identity that I was just discovering was so important to me in the absence of my voice and language to, to describe that. I needed something to, like, signal to my people that I am one of y'all. And I, yeah, I, I just thought cutting my hair would make me look queer, more queer. And so cutting the hair was a reminder that in the same way that you can choose to show up, you have choice in how you show up day to day. I
1: love the way that Asha framed... Her cutting her hair as something that she could do to communicate to others, as something that she could do to communicate who she was in this very like corporate setting she was in, in a space where she's not around people who similarly identify with her. And it's just like all these, I'm going to be a nerd, but this really reminds me of Tina Camp. She talks about reassemblage, reassemblage. I didn't even know it was blage until you oh, said no. it. Oh, no, I was just exaggerating. It's, well, no, my French. mind read it, reassemblage. I'm just glad you l- did. Li- exactly. So anyways, missing all language things. But like she talks about how like Black folks in particular, she's looking at these passport photos and how people are dressing and how they're communicating who they are through this photo, you know, it's a passport photo, so you're also communicating who you are through the state and these larger powers. But she talks about how like even the way that you fashion yourself in a photo, or in our case, the way that you change your hair and there's like all the different small, she calls it like quotidian, everyday, normally taken for granted ways that we can reclaim our power and our narrative and refuse the narratives that are out there, like speak back to them. We can refuse them. That's her language and words, mm. but.
0: Yeah, she has this great book, Listening to Images, to kind of add that, like the layer of yes. sound Listen. to imagery. Yes, And that just reminded me of John Teheranian, he's this Armenian scholar. Now, I'm a nerd back. We are grad students after all. Yeah. But he's basically this law scholar who studies the late 19th and early 20th century. And he talks about how so many immigrants, when they got to this country, think about the stereotypical, like my people talk about their grandparents sporting American flags at all times or that type of idea. So he calls that performing race or performing specifically whiteness at times. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds like, what do you mean performing whiteness? Because when I first heard it, it can sound confusing or like questioning what that could even mean. But I think it's like what you were just saying by Tina Camp. It's those small ways that you kind of put on like these identities or these identifiers, things that people can see to be like, oh, I know you're part of that group or I can put you in this category. Yeah. But in the same way people would do that to perform, to be deemed citizens and to be worthy of being in this country, at the same time, a lot of people
1: refuse to do that and are it's, like, exactly. I'm not gonna conform to the way you want me to look. Exactly, and like cutting your hair and wearing it in a short-fro natural style is a exactly. way of refusing to perform whiteness. You know, it's about that. It's also about yourself and what you want. But that's always connected to the larger powers that be.
0: And we're going to get into it in terms of the Black Power movement and all these different ways that hair has been politicized. And I think that's why an everyday act like Asha cutting her hair and also giving herself permission to step into this new phase of life Mm -hmm. and let go of this attachment to the past Whether that was just a temporary feeling, I admire her so much because she committed to it and followed through with it and
1: listened to her intuition and that Mm. intention. Yeah. No, the fact that you bring up intuition and intention, it really makes me think about how, you know, this idea of agency, right, is that it's like the I that acts and it's just you choosing and deciding to act and like amira mittermeier has this book called dreams that matter but she talks about how like in that understanding like agency and your choice to do something as just being you fulfilling your own desires and wants doesn't account for the ways that people feel like something beyond themselves whether or beyond this you know material world is also communicating Something to them. And like, I know people talk about their inner voice as also like their higher self or somebody, something, someone communicating with them. So, like, I don't know. I think just that for me, obviously, I am a scholar of religion and, and scholar in training, gotta be. And, oh, and scholar, I baby, am, I please. am. But like, how also like taking seriously how spiritual this was and that's you know her how spiritual how religious the, you know distinctions between the terms i could go into it right. anyway hair but I is won't. religious for but sure. yeah but exactly exactly the way that she felt through her own body and you know shaping her body a certain way like also was about her own choice but also about something she felt higher to and beyond herself
0: mm. and you know It's no secret that in a lot of indigenous cultures in this country, hair, growing out your hair, it's such a huge thing in our communities. And often after a death in the family or a point of grief, cutting hair, on the other hand, is often an act of the release, but also the commemoration or like the kind of a punctuation is the word that came Mm -hmm. to mind for some reason. Like a point at which you're marking that transition in your life between that before and after. Mm-hmm. And that just speaks to the opposite end. Like as much as growing your hair is also such this thing that's tied to intuition. Mm-hmm. People say like the longer your hair is, the more wise you are. Because it shows maybe like age and time, I think, yeah, is the yeah. the ancient understanding of that but i think at the same time that refusal to fit into those categories or that refusal to conform Mm. but also your agency in deciding to cut your hair like asha did to do that big chop to also just say fuck it to all these standards Mm -hmm. but basically in all these different cultures like there is a practice that's connected to hair and i don't think that's any coincidence at all
1: yeah absolutely and exactly what you brought up is that also in asha's you know right she's like refusing one mode of being right these like mainstream heteronormative ways of appearance but even in refusing that language in the community that you know sits at the center of that language the spaces the powers she then turns and embraces the community that actually matters to her and includes us all in this. And that's part of the reason why she had the hair release ceremony. And this is more of her reason in her own words.
2: Lastly, I wanna speak for a second on what I ended up calling my release ceremony. My haircut was my release ceremony. I am a pretty private person by nature. I love having intimate conversations one-on-one with people and I love connecting emotionally, intimately with my friends. Um, and family, but I was just going through a period between my leave of absence and some of the revelations that I was having that I needed a community around me to support me as I went through something that was very hard for me. Um, I didn't want to do it alone and I I didn't have to do it alone. So it was important for me to gather people. At first I was just thinking celebratory drinks after the haircut. And because we were still in the pandemic, there were folks that were able to come in person and some that weren't. And so this idea of a virtual offering emerged as well. And that gave me the opportunity to invite friends from London and across the country in Chicago, cousins in California and Florida, friends in Brooklyn, friends outside, family. It gave me the opportunity to really open this experience bring my my people, my community into my experience because I wanted their support and I wanted, I needed uplifting. I, it was a moment of vulnerability because I was and am still in a place where sometimes even the question, how are you, like brings me to tears because I'm not, you know, a hundred percent well as I am working through these things on my healing journey. But It meant the world to me, everybody who was able to show up in person and virtually. I wanted to be an example of what change can look like. I wanted to invite people into my journey. I wanted to invite conversation around my journey so that I could learn and grow from others. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of language about the ideologies and ways of being in the world that I... I'm now coming into and it's so helpful to hear from others who are a little bit more in touch or in tune with that language and those ways of being. It's, it's. I wanted to open up pathways for more conversation around the radical ways people are trying to change their lives every day. I wanted to open conversation around the real struggles that people are having and to normalize that as well. Uh, so it was important to me to gather community and it became a release ceremony because there was a thing that I was letting go of physically and emotionally. I love the haircut. I'm gonna have more fun with the colors and I hope to continue taking small steps every day to exercise my choice and to live a freer life, more aligned with my most authentic self.
0: There were so many points In the course of me listening to Asha, where I was just like, preach. Yeah. Like, that's how Asha speaks such an... I don't think the word old soul says enough, because I just Mm -hmm. called us old souls. And (laughs) Amara is actually (laughs) your younger sister. But I think Asha is someone that always has such a clear point of view. How do you even describe the all-knowing? So dignified and intentional I think Mm -hmm. and that's those are rare traits to find in people these days that's why I love our friend group so much
1: yeah yeah
0: so Iman what was the experience of being at Asha's release ceremony like for you
1: oh my gosh I was in such admiration of her in that moment and I could tell that every single person on that Zoom screen, like some people were, you know, driving and just had their phones next to them. You know, people were at work, but regardless of what they were doing, everyone in that community was just showing their admiration for her and also that they're willing to show up for her and her being so clear in her communication that this was both about her, but about getting support she needed, communicating who she was to those in her life. And again, just like not making the single act just about herself, but about the people in her life. And for me, I feel like that really reflects like Patricia Hill Collins talks about this and other folks do, too. But like the idea that the black feminist I is always a we, like it's always in relation with people. It draws on legacies and our ancestors that we embrace each other through our hair, that just being an I individual in this world isn't a lonesome or individual act. And like, that's what capitalism wants you to believe. Mm. That the only person you need in this world is yourself when you so desperately need community.
0: And that's exactly what Asha said. She said it was about herself, but it was also about who she is to other people mm-hmm. and who she surrounds herself with. And Asha is someone who's so intentional with her words And with her actions, too. Mm -hmm. So I think it's so beautiful that what I said, a hair release ceremony, (laughs) she elevated it to the next level. I was like, oh, like, yes, it was this beautiful in-person moment people in New York had. But the fact that we could even take part in it from far away. Yeah. And actually, the barber was on Zoom, too, just talking through. Yes. And I remember he took a video of the Zoom and like it was just everything we're going to talk about more in depth later about you know the medicine of you know black hair care of the barber shop of the beauty shop like it was embodied in that moment of being together yeah and zoom for me is sometimes the opposite of that like it can't always present that warmness Mm -hmm. or that clear communication and Mm -hmm. today or that day and today yeah there was such a level of connection, mm-hmm. even in the midst of being in this very room, yeah. that I was like, this is special, a special moment. Yeah. And that's exactly why even during that recording, we were like, we need to talk about this. Yes. We need to hold space for Asha and for her testimony and for the wisdom I think she always brings to a space and walks in her everyday life.
1: Yes. and. So, thank you, Asha, so much for sharing your beautiful story with us. And you saying that Asha's experience taught you something, taught me something, was a form of communication, and was a part of community is the perfect segue to get into our TLDR, which stands for Too Long Didn't Read. And that is the part of the show where we do the reading so you don't have to. And today we're discussing a chapter in. Dr. Ayana Bird and Lori L. Tharp's hair story.
0: Untangling the roots of black hair in America. It was published
1: in 2001. Yes. And we're also gonna be in conversation with an interview that Dr. Tanya Mears, who's an associate professor of United States and African American history at Worcester Wuchester University. And I poke fun because that's Kohar's hometown.
0: Okay, for all listeners, public service announcement. It's pronounced Worcester. Or if you're local, Worcester. Worcester. Worcester State. Worcester State. Which I live down the street from. So we had to give her a shout out because she was talking about the politics of hair. What more relevant topic
1: than that. Exactly. So Bird is an author, journalist, and screenwriter. And Tharps is a journalist, author, educator, and speaker whose work lands at the intersection of race and life. Um, And their book is a social history. And that's one of the reasons why I loved it, because it's so chock full of the Black experience in the words of actual Black people.
0: And we knew because the second we saw some code words that we both understood, I was like, ah, they're talking our language. Exactly, exactly. So Iman, walk us through your encounter with the book. What stood out to you? What struck you most about it? And
1: how did it change how you think about hair in general? Yeah, I loved this book because it's the whole premise of it is talking about how black hair is its own subculture. And I love the way that she uses subculture and not even like counterculture. Because for me, like when I think of subcultures, I think of like something, you know, in the traditional sense, like underground, but also something that exists for itself and doesn't always have to be counter to something else so i just i love that idea of subculture and doing and doing something for the sake of yourself but also the people who look like you it's not always and every i think often conversations about black hair it's always also a conversation about whiteness and it's i think i really put the focus back on black hair and what it means for black people and they talk about how like since our ancestors stepped foot in this country, that hair raising strategies, hair doing, hair keep, hair technology has always been like passed down from generation to generation and is a part of that like collective wisdom that defines the black experience, these different ways of knowing that aren't captured in larger society, but that exist between us for our own survival.
0: For us, by us, baby. Mm-hmm. Wow, I agree with that. And I resonate with what you're saying about this intergenerational transmission. Even just this week, I was speaking to my grandma, and I swear hair comes up every time we FaceTime. I think she's 78 at this point. So she's just getting on FaceTime like within this last year. And every time she does, she's like, Oh, did you do your hair? Are you going to get braids again? Things like that. And I think, like we said, not only is hair a form of communication by starting these conversations around it, mm-hmm. just like what's happening right now, but on the same way, how about what we've learned about hair being a form of communication during the era of enslavement between communities practicing certain hairstyles from their specific region in? the motherland of africa Mm -hmm. about hair also being a map i was just about to say that
1: language yeah i was just about to say i remember like seeing something i don't know if it was on twitter or whatnot but they that enslaved women would braid freedom maps or like journeys or how to get to a certain place in their children's hair or in that's beautiful other people's hair.
0: So it's both a knowledge practice mm-hmm. and a form of communication and oral history that's yeah. literally shared by word of mouth, but it's also this material or like real life physical mm-hmm. map and form of communication that is
1: I think weaved and braided with such care. Yeah. And gentleness. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what Burden Tharp's hair story talks about, too. It talks about how, you know, if black hair is a culture, it's also a culture that's defined by its own language, its own rituals, its own social organization. And I think one of the best parts that I loved about this book is like it has an entire page called the Black Hair Glossary, and it captures all the words that black folks use to talk about hair. So, like, kitchen, new growth, being tender headed, all these words that like name this experience mm-hmm. that like just other folks do not know. Were you tender headed? Oh my God, I was so tender headed. Now I'm not. And now I'm a heavy handed braider, as you probably know. No, you're not. Please. Okay.
0: I was really tender headed growing up. Yeah. So much so that I would just cry. And then now I enjoy getting my hair done. And I think it's, Also, because you're not heavy handed and you're a gentle hairdoer. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. And also we both knew what the kitchen is. And I love that brought up a memory for me of a photograph that for some reason I found it again, like at this point in grad school. If not, I probably would have completely forgotten that at our old house, my mom created this like cardboard ramp like structure that we would use to wash our hair. Or to basically, like, lean over into the sink in the kitchen. Yeah. Because that was where hair was done. Yeah. At the kitchen sink. And that's actually not what we're referring to when we say kitchen, by the way. But it made me think about how also the kitchen is such the central point of hair doing. that actually, I didn't go to a hair salon in my life until I was at least in fifth grade in that we have many thoughts. I'd only go to the Dominican woman in Worcester and... They do hair differently than black hair salons. And there's this whole language and kind of subculture and underground form of communication, even when it comes to the spaces that we get our hair done, whether that's the kitchen, mm-hmm. the salon, the black hair yeah. beauty shop, or the Dominican salon. So yeah.
1: You knew exactly what I just said. I know said. exactly what you're talking about. But like, it, it's such a good point, And it even brings up a point in the book is that they talk about how like the moment you mention Black hair, all these, regardless of how old you are, it brings up all of these, like they call it seductive memories, pleasurable memories, memories of your mom doing your hair or conversations with your grandmother. Like it's a hair being this thing, right? This material thing that we're interacting with every day, but that has like such a long history in our minds, not just history, yes, in the US sense for sure, but also like these memories from childhood.
0: Mm. But too often, For black women especially, hair is seen as... Actually, no. Well, people would probably agree with the statement. But I was going to say... It is imposed on us or said about us rather than us agreeing to it. Yeah. That hair is a burden.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, you bring up your experience in the Dominican salons. And can I just say I get charged extra? I have in my life got charged extra because my hair is 4C and it takes extra time. Racism. It is really racism, texturism, all of that. But even like. Straightening your hair and the language around that, like Bell Hooks talks about how even women deciding to straighten their hair is not always about how they want to be perceived in the white gaze, in the male gaze. She actually talks about how the first time for straightening her hair, it was a sign of her transitioning from a girl to a woman. Like for her, it was about like herself and maturity. And that is what like straight hair communicated for her. It wasn't always about. Mm. It wasn't for other people. It wasn't exactly. It wasn't about being white. So that brought up what Dr. Tanya
0: Mears said in the article that we read for today was about how Malcolm X, as much as these figures that maybe are revered in some sense for their anti-racist efforts, also, you know, we're not always pro-Black women in the sense that even black men (laughs) black men even back then black women couldn't win it was like they would see black women straightening their hair as that exactly Mm -hmm. as you said that sign of aspiring to be white or to fit into that category like we were talking about earlier performing whiteness yeah when really black women were just saying we want to be able to do our hair exactly as we want without
1: any of y'all saying shit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, like, that you bring up Malcolm X, too, because Farrah Griffin talks about how Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and these other, like, what we call, like, religio racial movements, but particularly the Nation of Islam was the first movement to take seri- to say basically black is beautiful and to take seriously a really previously ignored reality for women that wasn't being taken up in these other spaces and in civil rights discourses and whatnot. But yeah, you know, the male gaze and men telling how women should look is always, you know.
0: Burdensome, one might say. Exactly. Which kind of leads directly into another point from the book that we were speaking about earlier Mm -hmm. about black hair being seen as this burden in popular culture, whether it's in the legal sphere with the Crown Act, in employment spaces. Mm -hmm. What
1: is your take on Yeah, well, I I think like uh, Hair Stories is such a good book too because it talks about how black hair is a burden, right? Like, and we would think that that means that black hair is a burden because it's burdensome to be black. But they reframe it as black hair is only a burden because it becomes something you constantly have to talk to and explain to to white people or to non-black people. So I just I love the way that they flip that and they talk about how like this is something that gets that you're taught at a very young age when you're on at school and like somebody points out your difference by pointing out your hair.
0: Wanting to touch it, wanting to take it out, wanting
1: to treat you like an animal. Literally, literally. I remember a li- so I went to a Muslim charter school growing up and like so I was wearing the hijab, but I had my hair and I was a kid, right? So I had my hair and like the four ponytails, but had like the bobos. I don't even I, I don't know what people we call, call them, them. hairballs, hairballs. I had the hairballs like in four on my head. And then when I put on my hijab, it like looked like a rectangle. And then I remember one of my teachers and a student like pointing it out. And I was like, oh, yeah, because obviously my hair wasn't laying down like, Mm. you know, the other girls in the class. So my hijab wasn't flat. It was like this like structure because my hair was a structure underneath it. But again, it is. So then having to explain that. Uh. that is what the burden is. And like, that is what the memory is at a very young age, even with kids, which is such a counter to like these very pleasurable and they call them, you know, these very pleasurable, sentient, almost seductive memories that they talk about in the beginning in terms of relating to like your grandmother, or your mother doing your hair, or like you said, your mom having a special device that she made just to make you guys comfortable while she washed your hair. You're so
0: right. It's both in my class, we're talking about this framework of poison and medicine that mm. something can be both at the same time. Mm. And it just helps to think about something like hair as being both, that it isn't a burden at its natural form. It's actually been made into a burden. Yeah. It's become a burden because other people make it into that. Yeah. Not because it grows out of her hair and it's a problem. Right. And when you started speaking about your childhood memory, like floods and floods of memories. Yeah. And ideas and thoughts come to mind. And I think the biggest one for me is thinking about how, especially in native spaces, like good hair and having long braids or like Because hair is Mm -hmm. seen as something attached to wisdom. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the longer hair you have, like, I don't know, it's such it's both a thing that is so internally important for our communities. Yet there's this added layer of white supremacy of like the stereotypical way to be Native that comes up so often. So much so that in the Northeast and on the East Coast, in so many black Native communities, when hair doesn't, you know, fit neatly in the type, like the stereotypical style, like two braids, you know, woven down or like mm-hmm. into the the headpiece that looks best. Mm. Like I just remember you brought up like for you, the hijab. For me, I just thought of like all the different ways I wanted to put my hair back and like it wouldn't fit like yeah (laughs) or you brought up the memory I think I've told you about this and actually this would be perfect as social media for this episode I have this classic fro pic from when I was a kid and it looks like a happy photo but What you didn't know is I wanted to cry because I remember I was like, Mom, I don't want to wear a scarf tonight. I just want to go to bed like the rest of them. And I was talking about probably like white girls I see on TV. Yeah. I was like, please, let me just go to sleep for once, not have to do my hair. And she was like, "Okay," like in her classic, like do it. Do you. Yeah. Do what you want. And I remember I went to bed and I woke up and my hair was like, it's kind of magic, I think. Yeah. Now I look back on it like, damn, look at my fro. But it was like a perfectly coiffed fro. And I remember being like, for some reason in my head, I thought I would wake up and it would still be like totally the way I fell asleep with it. Yeah. I was probably like five. But when I woke up, I was sad that like it changed. Something about
1: the way I slept changed it. Yeah. And now, you know, I don't take my scarf off, but like- No, in in hair story, they talk about like, one of the like rituals of having black hair is having to become self-sufficient, whether that's through hard lessons and not wrapping your hair. Oh my God, literally have so many, so many memories to that regard. Once my sister cut off her braid, Isn't that crazy? (gasps) Which sister? Layla. Layla. My mom was doing her hair and she just thought she wasn't going to notice. My mom was like, did did you cut off one of your braids? So many, so many. So it was one of them, not like the braid. It was one of them. It was one of many braids. Yeah, but not many. But yeah, so they, they talk about, though, how like you bring it back to even earlier in childhood. But they talk about how college is And when you leave the house, that is a really salient moment where if you have black hair, you have to become self-sufficient around it. And like that is a ritual in itself. And that was definitely our experience because they actually quote a woman who went to Dartmouth. And she talks about how the black sorority on campus, which I'm assuming must have been the AKAs at that time, would bring a hairstylist from Boston, which is three hours From Hanover, just once a month, in order for girls to get their hair done. Now, they did that for the men. They did that for the men our years, but never lucky. It was just paying each other. It
0: was paying each other, exactly. I had black women doing my hair at Dartmouth. But also, I resonate with the timing part you're saying because Mm -hmm. I remember I started to transition and I did my big chop actually when I got to college. Yeah. But I remember. Black women have all this language like transitioning is actually mm-hmm. the point at which you transition between your relaxed hair mm-hmm. that's basically your whole head mm-hmm. and when your your roots start to grow you have your natural actual curl pattern that starts to come in and when women do the well people in general actually anyone can get a big chop get the big chop it's like kind of saying I'm taking off all those dead ends and I'm not going to like hang on to them. But I remember for so long, I was clinging on to my my hair for like length. And I just resonate with what Asha said. I was like, what is it about this? I knew when I straightened it or when I styled it a certain way, like it still seemed long and like professional enough. I remember that word. Like I was just thinking, like, how am I going to be respected at the school being a first student? I need to look like I can do hair, like look like a I can present myself Mm -hmm. when actually I was so cared for by my mom that I just didn't really know what to do. And that's why so much of the language about relaxers and no shade to anyone that gets relaxers. Let's say we are on team. Do what you want. And that's the whole point. Right. But so much of the language around relaxers is actually like it's going to help you manage it, which can be true on one hand. And it is true for me, at least like back then, my Mm -hmm. hair was a lot thinner than what it is now. But at the same time, it can be really reductive and like not helpful when a relaxer is not what you want. Like at Dominican hair salons and they're like, oh, you need this. It'll help. It'll help. And it's like, that's chemicals that are going to burn my scalp. Been through it, done that. But I stopped at age 18 because I was like, it hurts. And I like want to see what my hair looks like. And I remember it was an uphill battle. But I will say... In a nice moment of reflection, it wasn't until like this season of life and living with you, Iman, that I feel like way more connected with my natural hair because braids for a minute were my thing. Low key, gonna get back at that. No shade to braids, love Mm -hmm. braids. But I do think, like Asha was reflecting on, so much about hair care is about, it's kind of like a plant, as we say, Mm -hmm. it's about patience, it's about consistency. It's about steady watering and just that gentleness, care, and kindness
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it takes to grow a big plant. Like you're not you're not gonna speak those negative affirmations to your plant, will you?
1: Just so you know, car's pointing at me, being like, You're not gonna speak <laughs> your negative affirmations because obviously I'm working on all my affirmations.
0: Um oh, I didn't even mean I'm just Look at me. I just speak with
1: my hands too much. No, 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 And I'm taking it. No, I remember you. I remember once you told me like our hair teaches us lessons. And I literally every single time I'm doing my hair, I think about that like patience, time, letting things turn out just the way that they turn out. But you like your point that you're bringing up, though, like that is connected to like it wasn't that it was a burden to maintain. It was also the burden of trying to communicate your professionalism in a space, which I think it brings up exactly. Exactly. Like all the recent stuff around the Crown Act.
0: Exactly. So Dr. Tanya Mears speaks about this exact topic about black women and hair as being something, even in our modern world, as being unprofessional in different corporate settings and also in academia. Let's talk about it. Let's name it. Yeah. And I think this conversation is especially timely because... Some of you might have heard about the Crown Act, which is a California law that many different states are now taking up. I'm not sure if it's passed in I, any It there. passed in California.
1: I know it passed, I, I think
0: yeah. in a few other states. I think I saw
1: something that said like 19 states had also taken it up.
0: Amazing. Yeah. So I had heard about it in more like this general sense. Mm-hmm. But that's why when I saw California, I was a little surprised because It's no longer such a local discussion. It's been raised to this more national level. And this law basically prohibits discrimination based on hairstyle and hair texture by extending protection under the FEHA and the California Education Act. And this is the first legislation passed at the state level in the United States to prohibit such discrimination. Mm -hmm. And this was in 2019, by the way, in July And I wanted to bring the point up about the Crown Act in particular in connection with Dr. Tanya Mears' work from Worcester State, because she brings up this idea of colorblind racism. And this isn't to say that the Crown Act and the grassroots activism that went into the Crown Act is a bad thing in any way, but it is more about the level of attention and care and kind of closeness we should take when we read and hear news like this. So she brings up colorblind racism because it's this form of racism that does not attend to our differences. Instead, it'll kind of, you've heard it, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. Like it's this blanket statement that Mm -hmm. says that all hair matters. Mm -hmm. This is an important conversation to everyone. Mm -hmm. And maybe you've seen it on that level about all lives matter. Why? Saying that does not attend to the specific issues that are happening to black trans women, for example, so in this case, even you see how the Crown Act, even though it's such a it's a win on a institutional and legal level, it is not speaking directly to black women and responding to their specific experience, yeah, instead, it is a colorblind piece of legislation, yeah, like so many pieces of legislation today yeah that are actually like our u.s constitution written to say like all men are created equal mm-hmm. without saying like except for you people yeah that fine print you might say that elephant in the room like what even though when people hear the crown act they're thinking about braids or like a fro mm-hmm. which maybe could you actually fill people in a little bit more about like Since you know about this era, the Black Power Movement and how black hair at the time was such a political statement just to wear a fro.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's the whole embrace of like black is beautiful. This counter to white mainstream, the counter to the idea of equating beauty with white femininity. And that's what a huge part of the Black Power Movement, all the different organizations that comprise that, SNCC, the Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, All these groups were similarly talking about like a black aesthetic, like a black way of being and looking. You don't actually need to like fit in and integrate into that. You can resist that. And it's so funny that you talk about the Crown Act taking up this very universal language to a problem that particularly affects black people, because it really just goes to show how when it's white, it can be universal. And like the fact that blackness can also not be launching point for a more universal discussion Mm -hmm. is
0: it's almost like this catch-22 or this very paradoxical situation because on one hand being a mixed race person who's also Armenian like I said Mm -hmm. that brought up that I really do believe that hair discrimination is not just a black issue and that's not what we're trying to say and yet this is an issue that is based in activism by black women. And then when you hear about a lot of the dissemination of it, it's severed from its original roots. Yes. Roots. Yes. Hair. Roots. Exactly.
1: It's all linked to the same
0: thing in the question of hair.
1: Exactly. It becomes unrooted, which is why I felt Asha's testimony and what she shared with us was so important because it grounded this like very large conversation that we're having at this universal level with the crown act though it's rooted in black women's experiences in her sharing her own journey exactly she brought us home and she brought us closer to the ground Mm -hmm. to the landscape yeah so thank you asha so much thank you hair story for giving us so much language around around this. We are so grateful for all the collective wisdom that we get through our friends, through our hair, and through these works.
0: And last but not least, thank you, Dr. Ayana Bird, Dr. Lori Tharp, and Dr. Tanya Mears, for contributing to this conversation. And they're all Black women too, so we're just sharing the
1: the love here. The love. Period. Ah. So as always, we're going to close out on a comical note with Half Baked and Half Baked is a segment of the show where we share ideas we haven't fully fleshed out, but stand fully behind. So go ahead, Kohar. I know you do. You've been yelling at me all week. (laughs) I wish you could see her face. So how much time do I have? I'm joking. I'm giving you a minute and 30 seconds. Oh,
0: that's generous. Okay, Mm, A minute. So today, my Half Baked thought has to do with the show Handmaid's Tales. This might be controversial. Handmaid's, Handmaid's tale. 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 Yeah. Handmaid's Tale. I've watched season, what, one through three? How many seasons are there at this point? I think six. <gasps> Maybe I've watched more than that. Maybe at least to season four. Like, that is to say, I've watched it. I'm not speaking from a very blind take. Mm-hmm. It's actually a reflection on, it's based in, like, future... Apocalyptic New England mm-hmm. and Massachusetts, which is where I'm from, and that's where my indigenous land is. So, I do have thoughts. So, where do I start? I can't reduce it to saying like it's anti black, but I think how about I'm to say that Handmaid's Tale feels very unrooted to me. And by that, Ba-da-ba. period. Unrooted. Exactly. I like that word, unrooted, because yeah in a way, so much of the history that it's taken from. And this is actually going to be maybe like a part of my dissertation, an op-ed. You heard it here first. I haven't really articulated it, but I feel like, and I'm sure it's already existent in existence mm-hmm. as an op-ed, but so much of what it's drawing from historically, whether it's like the instruments of torture, racial terror... Gender mutilation, mutilation and rape is directly taken from what happened to Black women.
1: Yeah, the story's plot is drawn from the plot of
0: the story's plot is the plot history. of American history. Yeah, and I just think like every time I watch it,
1: I'm like, ugh,
0: because it it gets under my skin that not only it feels so unrooted, but it displaces the people who actually endured it. And that's literally what colonialism is. And I feel like if they had a black woman, I know it would be controversial and not great if she was the main character, because in another way, that would be bad. So can we really win? But having June as like the savior and having mostly white women just feels like historical revisionism once more. And in addition, I noticed this week when we're thinking about hair, June has her hair covered. And I feel like that's also like kind of speaking to the politics of hair Mm -hmm. and I just think like I don't know if I articulated that girl that's you got (laughs) it that's not a half-baked that's a fully baked thought (laughs) I right I have a lot more to say about this but I'll just end by saying that I no longer watch Handmaid's Tale
1: because of it well my half-baked thought is that fight it well I like to watch a little white on white crime sometimes. And my half big thought is that life is full of contradictions, and just to be open and honest about yours. So, thank you all so much for tuning in to Name It. You can find us on social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this episode. Tell us what you liked and want to hear more of. Comment a big idea you want us to take on. And you can catch the articles and the books that we referenced and additional resources in our show notes and on our Instagram page. And last but least, please share with a friend.
0: And thank you to the Porvu Center for teaching and learning and public humanities at Yale for providing these resources to make this conversation possible today. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. Catch y'all later.